Hello, and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is the Women's History Podcast, where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Katherine Garrett. Today, I am very excited to be joined by a guest that you might remember from episode two, A Presidential Blunder. Uh, Samantha Snyder is here. Uh, Samantha is the reference librarian at the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon, and she is an expert on the correspondence and life of Elizabeth Willing Powell. Uh, so, hi, Samantha. Hi. So nice to be back again. Um, I know we were talking about how long it's been since that that second episode so much has happened so so I'm excited to be back since the last time you're on the podcast what have you been up to well let's see so 2020 as we know has been kind of an odd year um Mm -hmm. but overall for me it's been good um I I think we mentioned as far as Elizabeth Powell things go this has kind of been the year of Elizabeth Powell for me um Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of different fun things that I've gotten to do and have been very lucky to get to do but the most exciting thing is that we got a tentative but mostly official public uh, publication date for the edited volume about Washington and women that's being published by University of Virginia. So that will be January 2022. And that chapter that we referenced in episode two, that that will be coming out in that volume. Congratulations. That's awesome. Thank you. And as far as other things, I've been um, getting my history master's. So I've been doing a lot of classwork and, and work work. So for people who might have missed our first episode uh, that talks about Elizabeth Willing Powell, um, could you give me and our audience a brief introduction to who she was? Sure. So Elizabeth Willing Powell was a very powerful, well-connected woman who lived in Philadelphia in the late 18th century. And she was a leader in high society in Philadelphia. So she She was born in the 1740s and died in 1830, so she lived a very long life. But by the 1770s and 1780s, she became this very powerful figure in society. She was very renowned for her intelligence and her political skills and advice, Um, and she was an incredible conversationalist. And the people who appreciated that the most were people like George Washington, John Adams, um, Benjamin Rush. Ben Franklin, all these people went to her house, which was her really like her her public stage to show off all of these skills. She had a lot of people over for salons and parties and all different things. I, I first heard of Elizabeth Powell with uh, my work with the papers of Martha Washington because they corresponded a bit. And George Washington and Elizabeth Willing Powell were very good friends and they have some really yeah. fun correspondence back and forth. Um, so that's actually how me and uh, Samantha met. Um, yes, some of yes. my work with the papers. Yep. Now this week, instead of focusing on just one letter, uh, we're going to handle this one a little bit differently. We're going to look into excerpts from an exchange of letters between Elizabeth Willing Powell and her nephew, John Hare Powell. Um, so this is, I think the first time we're going to be talking about John. Can you tell me a little bit about, uh, John and Elizabeth's relationship with him? Sure. So I'll briefly explain who John Hare Powell was. He was born John Powell Hare um, in 1786. He was Elizabeth Powell's youngest nephew of all of her 30 nieces and nephews. He was the very last one born. Yeah. So um, he was the youngest son of her youngest sister, Margaret Willing Hare. And Margaret Willing Hare was married to Robert Hare, who people who are fans of George Washington in the 18th century might recognize the name Hare from Porter. George Washington bought a lot of porter, and that was actually brewed by 
Robert Hare. He was the one to bring it to America. So that's kind of cool. So that's a little connection there. But John Hare Powell, um, he was clearly her favorite. When he was a little a little boy, he was taken to her house to be weaned and then by his mother. And then he came down with a scarlet fever. And Elizabeth writes about how she nursed him back to health. And, and he writes about it later, too. And I think they really developed a special connection after that. And she had lost all four of her, her children as infants. Oh. Um, so I, I would guess that that probably had a, an extra, like, made her extra connected to him because he was so ill and she yeah so I think that kind of started the special bond but then um as he got older they really developed much very much a, a mother-son relationship and um she was really focused on him being schooled so he went to the University of Pennsylvania she had him over at her house quite a bit and then um she actually why he changed his name to John Hare Powell is that she decided he would be the sole inheritor of her estate after she died. That's a whole other thing. But um, <laughs> when Elizabeth inherited um, a very large estate after her husband died of the yellow fever in 1793, with no children, she decided to make John Hare Powell her sole inheritor. And what she did was she made the stipulation that he would have to formally change his name from John Powell Hare to John Hare Powell, um, which happened in 1807. Um, a formal act was put through in the Pennsylvania legislature. And um, it reminds me kind of, of of the Washingtons and then George Washington Parkus, Custis and Nellie, um, how they kind of informally adopted them, but Elizabeth took it a step further and, and formally adopted them. So. So yeah, so they're, they, they were very much mother son. Okay. I think that's like important context, I think for this exchange. So yes. this is yeah. an exchange yeah. between yeah. someone who knows he's going to inherit a lot of property and somebody who knows that she's passing oh, on yes. a yes. lot. They, yes. And I, yeah, they, they were, they were like best friends. They were, <laughs> they were really close and, and they, this is only one of so many letters. She sends him abroad to London and then uh, to go on a grand tour. So this is, this is from those, those many, many exchanges. And he, he loves her and, and they, they really get along and they seem to have a lot in common, including being very dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, is there any other? Okay, so this letter um, is written in 1809, uh, April 6th through 17th, 1809. Is there any other necessary context that you think between of what's going on in their lives at the time of this letter? He's he's abroad in London. He um, he has been there about seven months. Um, was soon is going to become. This is actually necessary context. Now that I think about it, he's about to become the secretary of the legation under William Pickney, who was the British minister. Um, it's a whole, it's, that was something where he'd be doing a lot of diplomatic work. So he's on this tour for pleasure, but then he also gets this government job. As far as what's going on with Elizabeth, she's um, been a widow now for almost 20 years, but she's really developed this super strong reputation in Philadelphia. So she's very much at the point in her life where John Hare Powell looks to her as a role model. Perfect. Okay, so if you don't mind, would you like to read the first excerpt? Sure. I already find your style much improved, and I wish that your writing was more legible. 
as it is, no justice can be done to any composition of yours. I most sincerely wish that you would devote a few weeks to penmanship. I am deprived from the badness and irregularity of your writing of a great portion of pleasure I should otherwise derive from your interesting communications. Read Lord Chesterfield's sentiments on the subject. He execrates a bad handwriting as ungentlemanlike and vulgar to the last degree, and indeed the most fatal complaint due to you from the entire misapprehension of your meaning. Mr. Addison says it is either an evidence of neglected education or unpardonable affection, neither of which applies in your instance. I think it may be fairly ascribed to a too lively imagination proceeding from your not methodizing your time. When a child, you wrote a very fine hand. Patty reads your writing with much difficulty, Robert very imperfectly, and to your mother, it is algebra. Surely whatever is worth doing is worth doing well. I will add another motive that I trust will not be indifferent to you as a gentleman and friend. I request it as a favor and as evidence of your respect and tenderness for the feelings of the friend of your infancy that you will endeavor to meet my wishes on this subject. I love her so much. <laughs> so, okay. So she's, the entire section is about how bad his handwriting is. Yes. 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 <laughs> yes. And, and I feel like we should preface this with the fact that he set himself up for this because of the letter that he had sent her very briefly. He just briefly says in the middle of the letter, as for the badness of the writing, I expect to be abused. You will, of course, employ my sister in deciphering it. So he sets himself up for this. <laughs> okay, so is Patty his sister or he oh, says- Oh, yes. yes. Patty, Patty is his sister, Robert is his brother, and then, and then his mother is Margaret Willingham. <laughs> to so. your mother, it is algebra is such a good line. You think about how women, women's education and algebra and like that they all knew, uh, I don't know, I think in like looking at it from a, from a scholarly perspective. <laughs> it's it's uh, relatable to me as somebody whose job is reading old handwriting for a lot of oh, my day. Yes. I, I can understand Elizabeth's frustration with this is the letter. It's the only way that she's going to get the communication from this person. And if the handwriting's bad, you just don't know what this person's trying to say. It can be, it is like algebra. It's like, I don't know what you're trying to tell me. It's like a puzzle. So I, I love the fact that he's like, I know you'll abuse me for my bad handwriting. And yes. Elizabeth Powell's yes. like, okay, hold my beer. Like, <laughs> I will, and I will do it with gusto. Yeah, hold my beer. Yeah, hold, hold my, hold my Madeira. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so to dig into a little bit of the details of what what exactly she says in the reference, the references that she makes, though, she says, "Read Lord Chesterfield's sentiment on the subject." Now, I had not heard of Lord Chesterfield before this, um, so I did a little bit of research to find out who that was. Uh, so Lord Chesterfield was Philip Dormer, the fourth Earl of Chesterfield. Uh, he was a politician and diplomatist from England who died in 1773, but he was most well-known and most famous for uh, a book of letters that he had written to his son. So his daughter-in-law, a year after he died, published 448 of the educational letters that he had written to his son to help turn him into a young gentleman and give him a good education. Um, and so it was published as sort of like, like a guidebook, like uh, it's words of advice that everybody could learn from, mm -hmm. or almost like a parenting guidebook. Uh, and it was 
popular, but even like as soon as it came out, some people were already saying it was a bad book, <laughs> but it had sort of mixed oh, yeah. reviews. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and one of the um, issues with it is so, first off, there are letters that he's writing to his illegitimate son, which I think is important because there are all these letters that like how to be a good person and how to choose a wife and how to like be respectful but it's to his the reason that he's writing letters and not like raising the child is because it's his illegitimate son so like how hypocritical oh my god that is incredibly hypocritical (laughs) and very that his daughter-in-law was like publish these (laughs) (laughs) um and so this book was sort of was was well known i found one quote from it about handwriting. I don't know if this is the exact section that she wants, but so this is this is an example of Chesterfield writing about handwriting. He says, the next thing necessary in your destination is writing correctly, elegantly, and in a good hand too, in which three particulars, I'm sorry to tell you, that you hitherto fail. Your handwriting is a very bad one, and it would make a scurvy figure in an office book of letters, and even in a lady's pocketbook. But that- oh, <laughs> right? <laughs> he says, but that fault is easily cured by care, since every man who has the use of his eyes and his right hand can write whatever hand he pleases. So anybody can write well. You just have to have your eyes in your right hand. Um, as the correctness and elegance of your writing, attention to grammar does the one, and to the best authors the other. In your letter to me of the 27th June... NS, you omitted the date of the place so that I only conjectured from the contents that you were at Rome. Oh my God. This, <laughs> this is an example of the tone of the letters that are sort of throughout. Um, some of them he's almost manipulative. Uh, there's a quote, I shall expect perfection or you and I shall not be very well together. I shall dissect and analyze you with a microscope. Gosh, wow. I think this is interesting. So we have, we have Elizabeth Willing Powell as like a mother figure who is trying to get her nephew to write better, but she's not that mean in this. Like she's, she's being mean, but she's not being quite that mean. She's being, she's being, yeah, she's being like affectionately mean with the way their relationship is. She's being, Bushrod Washington uses when he talks about her teasing him raillery. He uses the, (laughs) I opened myself up to her raillery. And I I think this is a good way to describe that too. It's affectionate raillery. (laughs) Yes. And I, I think that's exactly how I would describe that. The style of 18th century education is a little bit like harsher than things that we would see mm-hmm, today absolutely was, yeah uh so this sort of language wasn't out of place so you've heard some opinions of lord chesterfield right yes yes actually um elizabeth powell herself in in 1783 so you know within 10 years after the book came out her sister mary bird who we who people may recognize um writes elizabeth asking if elizabeth has any recommended books for her daughters and and i'm assuming two or sons because they were young but um she must mention lord chesterfield because she says uh she goes off about lord chesterfield in her letter about um her 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 sister must have mentioned that she was thinking lord chesterfield's letters might be a good title um for a letter for her from philadelphia to and send to virginia so she does not like Lord Chesterfield for how he talks about women. And actually, mm-hmm. she's not alone in that. Um, Mercy Otis Warren also is not a fan of Lord Chesterfield for, for also how he talks about women. Um, she writes to her son 
1779, criticizing how he compares or how he talks about women and all they are are their fashion and kind of like how how it, it makes them seem that they're shunned from society and stuff and, and all this all this different stuff. But Mercy Otis Warren was not a fan of Lord Chesterfield either. Um, so these very powerful women were not fans. Um, Elizabeth was not a fan of him more for how he focused on beauty was the only thing that mattered and the, the women's minds didn't matter. So she was very focused on the intellect, which is, I'm not surprised by that because of how focused she was. But then... She turns around years later and says, read it. So clearly she read it. <laughs> but he was right about penmanship. He's wrong about yeah, women. He was right about penmanship, wrong about women. I just, <laughs> I, I like to imagine her reading it and like with the penmanship part that you just read being like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like underlining it and being like, this is what I'm going to tell him. <laughs> as I was just doing my preliminary research. First off, I found a book of orthography that was the first, before I could find the actual official um, Chesterfield book, I found an 18th century book called Orthographical Exercises. And so this is an example of 18th century education. So it was, it's, it's incredible. Like I'll, I'll try to put a link to it or I'll at least put a picture of it on the website when I find it. So it's a book of educational letters, similar to Chesterfield's letters, but they pull from a lot of different people. But then the book itself misspells every word and they spell them, they spell them phonetically. So, oh my God. (laughs) And so what the teacher was supposed to do is the kid would take this letter and they would read it out loud. So they should be able to read because they're phonetically spelled, even though everything's spelled wrong. So they would go up to the front of the class and read the letter so that everybody would get what sort of educational benefit that content that was in the letter. And then they were supposed to go back and rewrite it with correct spelling. And that was how they taught spelling was having them read it spelled wrong first, which to me seems wild. Because that's, that's just so wild. That's so wild. I, I was looking into a little at how they learned to to write and some of that was they would they would literally it was like everything had a theme of writing like there were business letters there were personal letters there were letters there were there were um templates for writing to siblings and and future husbands and wives um but but what they would do is they would have to they would have to at that point I think either know how to read or at least know how to trace the letter itself so it's getting implemented into their mind at the same time which is fascinating to me it's like they're learning these skills before they can even write or quite understand it I don't know it's it's very interesting how that works like versus you think of today with how we learn to write and stuff it is different in a way we're not we're not learning themed things we're not learning how to write to our I don't know it's very interesting so yeah it's it's a lot less harsh (laughs) (laughs) like yeah they they weren't doing like phonics (laughs) no no they were doing come read at the front of the class 18th century is relatable but then there's things that are very different and yeah yeah and there's there's a great chapter I should mention this where I found where I found the Mercy Otis Warren thing is from Kate Coleman's book The Politics of Fashion in 18th Century America um but there's also a great chapter in a book called Atlantic Families um with an author named Sarah Pearsall or Pearsall I I I don't know her but I really like her book and it's Atlantic Families Lives and Letters in the later 18th Century and there's a whole chapter on men like 
fathers teaching their sons and, and uncles teaching their sons. But for me, it's really interesting because it's not, for, to bring it back to John here, Powell, it's not his father, it was his aunt. So I think that's very interesting that she took on this role. Like, and, and so it's, it's a testament to her, I think, too, that she was, yeah. So anyway, but, but that's a great, a, this is a great book and a great chapter. The chapter is called Credit in Life and Letters. Before we move on, I just want to do one, there was, I found a quote from John Keats about uh, Lord Chesterfield that I just got a big kick out of. Um, so uh, here's a quote from Keats. Um, you must improve in your penmanship. I would endeavor to give you a facsimile of your word thistlewood if I were not minded on the instant that Lord Chesterfield has done some such thing to his son. Now I would not bathe in the same river as Lord C, though I had the upper hand of the stream. <laughs> <laughs> I am grieved that in writing and speaking, it is necessary to make use of the same particles he did. <laughs> so Keats had very strong opinions. So Keats had strong opinions too. Let's go into, all right, so that is her letter sort of admonishing him for his handwriting, mm -hmm. giving him some advice. Mm -hmm. uh, she mentions how difficult it was to read and how it's ungentlemanly to have bad handwriting. Uh, and so we do have his response. So do you want to go ahead and read his response? Sure. <laughs> okay. I have ruined four sheets upon which I in vain attempted to write less indecently than I am used to do. The horrid thought of moving my pen tardily on my paper has banished from my brain every idea but that of not being able to execute my determination in so illegible an undertaking. <laughs> I hope you will not be surprised at finding on the other page an elegant copy of pot hooks and hangers as you have frightened my brains to God knows where. Such an attack I never before sustained as my patience must now endue. I accused of being careless, of acting unlike a gentleman, of being badly educated and impardonably affected. I am not only accused, but convicted by two great authorities and sentenced without a hearing to serve two weeks under a writing master. Oh, unhappy youth, to have had an aunt who after three and 20 years could not make thee a gentleman. Oh, disconsolate aunt, who hast in vain bestowed thy labor, lavished thy money, and given thy name to so degenerate a wretch who, unworthy of his ancestors, has disgraced his birth by badly writing. O oh, genie who directs the hands of mortals, give me courage in my endeavors and success in my execution. But to be serious, my dear aunt, I, I assure you that I have often attempted and always wished in my letters to you to write much better than I have done, but my thoughts hurry me along, and when I write slowly, I write stiffly. Your desire, independent of your appeal to my feelings as a gentleman and as a friend on this, and as well as on all other subjects, would have sufficient weight to illegible me to the correction of any neglect or of any fault. As to my brother, he may put on his spectacles or burn my letters if they be so troublesome to him. If I were to write with as much care as the improvement of my hand would require, I should not send him one line where he gets 10. I have written since I left America near 800 pages, which if written up and down would have taken me as many hours. The end. <laughs> I would just like very quickly like to point out that even when he's writing so carefully, there's still two illegible sections. Two illegible. And I have to say too, 
I have the benefit of living in 2020 where I have a laptop or I have a computer screen. I can zoom way in on his letters. If I was her trying to read those without any kind of magnification, I wouldn't have been able to read <laughs> those two illegible words. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is this is hysterical. I love how funny he is here. He's I know. When I first transcribed this, I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, wow. <laughs> So I want I want to point out though because I I had forgotten this when I was first doing my research but I believe so he talks about how he's gonna serve two weeks under a writing master so he's like a grown man he's doing a real job over in London and he's talking yeah, about yeah he's twenty three years old yeah <laughs> and then I think when he says something about pot hooks and hangers you looked it up I did too. It is the it is I mean at least what I interpreted it as is learning how to do the specific whoops of the letters but then also I read a second definition that it means bad handwriting so I'm a little confused but I I initially when I was reading thought it meant this because it looked like a pot hook or a hanger yes that's what I got as well so he says you will not be surprised to see an elegant copy of pot hooks and hangers so here he's practicing yes. his loops he's going back to basics yes. <laughs> Which I love that because that again shows how people learn to write because I would not be surprised if as a little boy, he had to sit there and do that. <laughs> that was funny. Uh, I think he said it up funny. I also think his feelings were a little bit hurt, but also like, I think so. Also, he is, he is joking about it here too. <laughs> they seem to be really good at firing it right back and forth at each other. Like, I can only imagine what their conversations were like in person based on the way they write to each other and how he talks about how much he's like, I know we talked about this and I know we talked about that. So I'm really curious. I wish I could be a fly on the wall to watch them do that in person. The, the section that really gets me is the, oh, unhappy youth. <laughs> Oh, disconsolate aunt. Oh, genie who directs the hands of mortals. <laughs> That's my favorite part. Oh, genie who directs the hands of mortals. Uh, I do relate when he says, my thoughts hurry me along. And when I write slowly, I write stiffly. I do, I, my handwriting has improved after doing this job because I now know how terrible it is to try to read bad handwriting. But I, uh, if I'm just writing as I'm thinking, I'll just leave like whole words out. So I know exactly what he means. Same. And, and I'm like that with texting. I tend to be, and actually what's interesting, I was thinking about this as I transcribed his letters. He puts a lot of things, he does like a line or two at a time, and then he makes a new line and a new line. He writes how I text sometimes. I'm with <laughs> people who tend to text my thoughts as they come. So I think he would be that type of texter too. <laughs> like we were saying about like things that are different and things that are similar. It's, it's interesting to think of how like handwriting can be translated into typing and, and typos. I'm a big typo person. So I, I can empathize with that too, with the like <laughs> writing too fast that I spell things wrong. <laughs> but he, he's kind of saying though, where he's like, I enjoy writing to you. And I always wish to write much better than I have done, but my thoughts are me along. He's sort of saying like, if you want me to write comfortably, like if you like it, then I will probably not be writing as prettily as you might like. But he's sort of saying it's like, well, yeah. it's because of our relationship. It's because I'm just writing as I think when I write to you that yeah. I am writing so bad. Um, so you should be happy. No, not exactly. But, I think there's like, but, but basically, but basically, yeah. because she also will write him. So he writes, I will say too, he should not be quite so sassy because to her, every one letter, he writes 
like four or five he, and he's always like why aren't you writing to me why aren't you writing to me and she, she just can't answer them fast enough <laughs> but uh yeah. so that's funny so he's he's got a lot to say and he likes writing writing a lot of letters he does and he writes like not only is he writing to her he writes to his sister he writes to his best friend he but but to his aunt he writes the most and actually there's a really interesting letter where she tries to decipher it herself there's in pencil above different words it's her handwriting trying to figure out what he's saying and i love that that got saved i saw that and i was like Oh my God, there's, there's two letters where she does that. And then the rest, she just. Oh, I love that. That is one of those little things you only get from seeing the manuscript. That is cool. Exactly, exactly. And I also should say thank you, Historical Society of Pennsylvania, for having all these letters. So, <laughs> so that section at the end, I should not send him one line where he gets 10. I have written since oh, yeah. I left America near 800 pages, which if written up yeah. and down would have taken me as many hours. Dang. And the crazy thing is that he had only been in 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 Europe at that point since and and London at that point since November of 1808. So he had been there 7 months. That's a lot of pages. That's a lot of pages in a very short amount of time. Yeah, a lot. I wanted to ask this is a hysterical little section. Do we know how Elizabeth responded to this? Sadly, we don't, which I think I mean, I guess you know we do know how she responded in that she never addressed it. <laughs> She says, I received your letter of June 1st, 1809, in one of her letters after the fact, doesn't okay. say anything, just does not. <laughs> so I think in a way, that is her response. I tried it, like. <laughs> I tried, but I mean, she did say a couple years prior how he had infamously, infamously bad penmanship. She could only decipher a little bit of letters, but his communications are written in characters so infamously unintelligible. So she knew. But one one thing I forgot to mention this, and he talks about how he wishes that she could have a spyglass to look in on him, which I think is actually, it's kind of awesome and kind of like nice. For, for what we've all been dealing with, like you and I are talking over Zoom, like yeah. he, they would have really benefited from, and then she wouldn't have had to read, try to read all his letters. Like, and, <laughs> and I think it's, I think it's kind of cool to think about, they were already thinking about things like, you know, video chat that we have today. Oh, I love the thought of Zoom as a spyglass. That's so cute. He says, I wish you had a long spyglass that could reach across the Atlantic. Like, so she could see that he's telling the truth when he says he's studying and he's he's only hanging out with reputable people and he's met all the family that they're supposed to talk that he's supposed to meet and then he wants a spyglass to check in on her too which I think is also really sweet at this point of living in our 18th century quarantine we're not allowed to talk to people it is nice to have our little as much as I have zoom fatigue it is nice to have a little digital spyglass I guess the last point that I wanted to make is sometimes when I'm talking about the way education was in the 18th century or just like people be like, oh, that sounds so mean. And I'm like, well, education was just different back then. Like this was the way people were used to being spoken to. It is kind of fun to find a response like this where somebody's getting this very scolding letter and then they're responding just irritated by it. Exactly. <laughs> so like, All right. <laughs> Times were different, but that was just particularly irritating. <laughs> I just think it's interesting. So there, there's, there's this letter where there's these cultural references like Lord Chesterfield that we don't get. There's the pots and hangers and just the different language. But then there's just the very human 
close relationship with an aunt uh, and a nephew and uh, just teasing each other. That's a perfect way to summarize that letter. <laughs> and I love that uh, um, this isn't something that people would probably quote for a lot of massive historical significance, but it just tells you so much about their relationship. And this is the part exactly. of working with these it's, letters I love. That's what I love. It's the letters that make them people. That's what I always find so interesting. It's like, we all have these letters that we quote a lot, like the Abigail Adams remembered the ladies and Elizabeth Powell with her letter to George Washington about running for president again, which is an amazing letter. But it's letters like this that really make me love what I do and love history and all that. Thank you so much for joining me and coming back on the podcast. It is an absolute delight. Thank you for having me back. <laughs> for my listeners, uh, I will put some of these books and quotes that we've been talking about in the show notes so you can check them out and as ever i am your most obedient and humble servant thank you very much <laughs> <laughs>